0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles, if you've got them, please, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. And uh, while you're turning there, here's the question of the day. If you are a Christian, if you believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived and died in your place, the death that you deserved, and you've received that by faith, you're a Christian, God has saved you. Here's the question. Why did God save you? Why has he saved you? Now, maybe you have some answers off the top of your head. Maybe you'd answer by saying, well, God saved me because he loves me, which would be a good answer. Maybe you'd answer by saying, God saved me so that one day I'll spend eternity in heaven with him, which would also be a, a good answer. Both of those are found in John three sixteen. Incidentally, the passage that I'll be teaching on for our Christmas Eve services. God saved you because he loves you. He saved you so that you'll spend eternity in heaven with him someday. Now, are those the only two reasons the Bible gives for why he saved you? If you've not thought about this question, it's an important one. It's an important one. Why did God save you? The Bible gives a number of answers to that question, but the one I want to zero in on is kind of outlined for us in a smattering of passages throughout Paul's epistles. Let me show you three of those. Romans 8, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his son. To be conformed to the image of his son. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, And we all, with with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, here it is, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Colossians 3, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Why did God save you? One of the reasons God saved you is simply this. He saved you to conform you to the image of Jesus, who is the image of God. You have been saved in order that you may be conformed to the image of Jesus, who is the image of God. Now, remember the core plot line of the scriptures. The core plot line of scriptures is God's vision, God's mission for his creation is that there would be a populous people, living in his dwelling place, walking with him in humility, trust, and obedience. That's his vision. That's his mission. Christianity is not an insurance policy where I'm granted access to heaven when I die, but until that time, I can live any way I want to. That's not... Biblical Christianity. It's not an insurance policy you cash in at the end of life. No, in the original creation, Adam and Eve were made to image God. To image God. To showcase God's character, his essence. They were created to showcase God. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's not changing the strategy. He's not changing the purpose. He's not changing the mission. He's not changing the vision. Jesus comes on the scene to make good on that original design, to form people into people who image him, who is the image of God. In other words, my brothers and sisters, we have been saved to showcase the character of Christ to each other in the world. We have been saved to showcase the character of Christ to each other in the world. Now, what I want to do today, this is a very practical sermon. I want to talk about the nature of Christian change. Very practical, street-level, rubber-meets-the-road kind of message. Because we're talking about being conformed. As soon as you use that word, you're talking about change. God has saved us in order to change us into the image of Christ. So we're going to be looking at Christian change. What is the nature of it? How does, how does one change? And if you have an interest or you're just curious about those in your life, now listen, this is one of those messages where it's going to be tempted to just elbow the person sitting next to you. Don't do that. Don't do that. If you have an interest in becoming more patient, self-controlled, loving, joyful, gentler, this message is for you. This message is for you. I want to read Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, famous passage, starting in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Christian change, two points. We're going to look at the nature of change and how it happens. The nature of change and how it happens. And I need to spend the first part of this message talking about the nature of Christian change because in my experience in pastoral ministry, this is actually one of the, the, the most, the, the biggest misunderstanding about Christian change happens here at this level. And when it doesn't happen the way one expects it to, they often throw in the towel. So this becomes a huge barrier. Not understanding how the scriptures talk about Christian change becomes a huge barrier to people actually changing. Because expectations have not been calibrated biblically. So we're going to look at the nature of of Christian change. What does change look like? Jonathan Edwards, William Barclay, Jack Miller, probably a whole host of others down through the centuries have made similar observations about the nature of change based on this text and based on Paul's use of the word fruit. Fruit. So we're going to notice four aspects to the nature of change All found in Paul's use of the word fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all attributes that uncontestably showcase the character of Christ. And Paul has an expectation that they be present in believers. But why use the word fruit? Why not use a word like traits or qualities or characteristics? All these other words were available to him. Why use this word fruit? It's fascinating. Well, let's look at it. four aspects to the nature of Christian change. Number one, change is slow. Change is slow. Living in a technological and industrial age, this one is lost on us because we are used to getting things fast. Can we just say that? We are used to getting things fast. And every time you get something fast, by the way, it shapes you into thinking that's how life works. But in an agrarian society where you farm for a living like the ancient people did, this had a lot of meaning to them. Seeing fruit takes time. I talked with someone who's very familiar with how grapes work, how grapevines work. And I asked them, I said, so like how long they've got a vineyard and and how long does it take to go from seed to grapes on the vine? And they said it can take up to six years to go from seed to what, what they called good or useful fruit. (laughs) Six years, six years, six years from the time the seed goes into the soil until you have something that's, that's useful. That's the nature of Christian change. The seed of the gospel may penetrate a heart and germinate, but it doesn't mean its fruit is immediate. Change is slow. I think one of the hardest parts of the Christian life to accept is this, for modern people. We're so conditioned in the West to expect results fast, right? Every moneymaker out there, watch the commercials, right? Hey, lose 50 pounds in two weeks. (laughs) Right? How many people will sign up for that? It'll make millions. Right? We want stuff fast. Very fast. One of the most bizarre things I ever noticed, uh, experience with regard to this was in my wife's, uh, hometown outside Dayton, Ohio. Um, we were, we were dating and we went through a drive-through convenience store. I'm serious. I was awake for this. I wasn't a drive-through convenience store, a drive-through convenience store. So what you do is picture like a gas station, convenience store kind of thing, but there's no gas and you stay in your car and you pull into this structure, open at both ends with a drive-through lane and on both sides of it there's refrigerators and freezers and there's shelves lined with food and stuff and there's an attendant there you just hand them your list and you watch them scurry about to get get your stuff and then they come back with the total you give them the card they run it through'll we'll put it in the back seat for you i didn't have to take my seatbelt off and i went grocery shopping right now, now of course that's been that's been surpassed today oh, by but... Groceries getting dropped off on your front stoop. But what does it say? We want something fast. We want it quick. How about convenient? I want to do as little work as possible. These things start to work against us. It piles up over time. We want results fast. But here's the the deal. The long view is that Christian change is slow. It's slow. I've used over the years the imagery of it's more like growing an apple tree than downloading an app. Christian change is more like growing an apple tree than downloading an app. Second, change is seasonal. Change is seasonal. Paul's used the word fruit. Agrarian society. Change is seasonal. We just came out of apple picking season. You pick apples from when to when? What, you start picking in September? Do people, are people picking in November still? Are they still picking in November? Or is it October mostly? September, October. Point is, you're not picking apples here in Wisconsin in April. Even the great growing state of Florida, you do not pick oranges 12 months out of the year. It's 10, but still, I mean, you know, there's still two months where you're not picking fruit. You're not picking fruit. There's a season for fruit production. If we were to chart Christian change on an X and Y axis, it's not a, a straight line, inclined straight line to the Right? That's not, that's not what it looks like. If we were to chart your growth over the years, your Christian change, you know what it looks like? It looks like a river or a creek. It ebbs, it flows, seasons of growth, seasons of stagnation, seasons of regression. That's the nature of Christian change. That's the nature of it. Third, change is character-related its character related notice what paul does not include in the list let me let me read some things for you this is not in the list things like leadership management iq charisma organization administration hey you can keep going right musical ability dancing rhetoric it's not on the list It's not on the list. Listen to it. It's character related. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Christian change is character related. And fourth, change is inevitable. This is not just fruit. This is fruit... Of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, fully God. If you have the Spirit of God in you, there will be change. I guarantee it. You will become more loving. You will become gentler. You will become more self controlled. This is not just fruit, this is fruit of the Spirit. Change is inevitable. Now, how can you speak so confidently, Pastor? Well, God made promises that he would do this work in his people. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So by prophecy, God announces through Jeremiah a time is coming when the law will not necessarily be set aside, but when the law will be written on the hearts of his people. That's even better. The writer of Hebrews affirms this. So one result from the work of Christ is the law written on the heart. We have, we have been divinely empowered for supernatural living. Do you realize that? You've been divinely empowered for supernatural living. The spirit of God is authoring change in us. If God has written the law, which showcases the very character of God, if God has written this law on our hearts, then we ought to be manifesting the character of God to each other, to the world. This work is inevitable because it's the supernatural work of God in our lives. God saved you to conform you to the image of Jesus, who is the image of God. The nature of change is slow it's seasonal, it's character related, it's inevitable. Now, as a quick aside, how do I know if it's happening? How how do I know if I'm changing? (laughs) Two things I would say. Number one, you cannot be your own assessor. (laughs) You cannot be your own assessor. We are not good self-diagnostic people when it comes to this thing. You've got to go ask someone who knows you. Ask someone who knows you well. Ask them these questions. Have I become more joyful? Have I become gentler? Have I become more self-controlled? Somebody outside you has to speak into that. And secondly, you got to make sure that you're using the right unit of measure. You know, I was a little boy, I would, you know, have the growth chart on the wall, growth chart on the wall. Yeah. Every week I'd run up to mom. Hey mom, measure me. I'm taller. I know I am. No, you're not. We did this six days ago. (laughs) The unit of measures wrong. Go back in a year. Ah, much better. Yes. We see it. So the question is not, Hey honey, have I become gentler since last week? Well, no, actually, you're having a terrible week when it comes to that. (laughs) It ebbs and flows, right? It ebbs and flows. uh, Have I become gentler since we met each other 15 years ago? Have I become more self-controlled over the last 10 years? Those are the questions to ask. That's the nature of Christian change. Second, how it happens. A couple of interesting things to note about Paul's language here that provides clues to how he sees Christian change taking place. Number one is to identify and confess over desires. Identify and confess over desires. Let me read it. Verse 16 and 17. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these things are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So when people talk about, I really want to see change in my life. I want to see change in in uh, uh, other people's lives there's something about it that's unpleasant that's ugly, that's off to use Paul's language our problem is the desires of the flesh sinful nature <laughs> we come out of the womb messed up okay? everybody's got that, right? if you don't believe me show me the last kid you had to teach how to throw a temper tantrum Who did you have to teach a child to do that? I would love to meet that person. If you know someone like that, let me meet them. My kids are not that way. They came out with that talent right there, ready to go. This is the desires of the flesh. This is sinful nature, right? So we've got, think of it this way. We've got messed up spiritual DNA, and through that messed up spiritual DNA, it produces all sorts of ailments and conditions. Now, Paul uses the, the, uh, the word desires. Literally, in the original, it's over-desire. It means to have an inordinate craving for something. An inordinate craving for something. This is, this is his way of describing what's wrong with us in summary form. Inordinate craving. Let me give you a very practical example. Imagine for a moment, dad gets home from a hard, stressful day at work, looking forward to a night at home, relaxing, watching the game. Mom has had an equally hard day with the kids. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't obey. There was much angst in the home. Dad gets home, wants to unwind in front of the TV. Dad gets home, and mom mom wants him to deal with the unresolved behavioral problems with the kids. Instead of watching the game, dad has to deal with the kids, which makes him angry, Instead of getting a husband willing to help with the kids, mom gets a cranky, stressed out husband, which makes her mad. This is purely theoretical. (laughs) And all of this leads to dad and mom (laughs) having a spirited discussion in the privacy of their own bedroom. Sound familiar? All right, what happened? What went wrong? What needs to change? Who needs to change? And how? (laughs) So many of our problems come because we turn good things into gotta have it things. If we just remember this, oh, this is the source of so many of our problems. We turn good things into gotta have it things. Good things become too important to us. It's, it's often not what we want that's the problem. It's how much we want it. See, sin is not primarily doing bad things. It's just wanting good things too much. Sin is having an inordinate desire, to use Paul's language. Sin is having an inordinate desire for something. Now, in the story, you might say the problem is dad just needs to learn how to, how to manage his anger, but that is not deep enough. <laughs> Why did he get angry? Now we're starting to zero in on the root cause. Well, he had expectations of relaxing and watching the game, but that desire got blocked. And so he got angry. What was the good thing he turned into a gotta have it thing? What was the good thing he desired too much? Put your own language to it. Comfort, relaxation, huh? And when he was hindered from having that comfort, that relaxation, he got angry. It's an over-desire. Now think about the good things in our lives where that can happen, where where it goes wrong. Overeating. Food is a good thing. When food becomes a gotta-have-it thing, you overeat. Or you run to it as your escape from the stresses of life. The problem is not in what you want. The problem is how much you want it. In that case, why you want it. Exercise. Exercise is a good thing. When exercise becomes an ultimate thing, you'll become compulsive about exercise Compulsive about what you eat, what you look like, so that your whole sense of self-worth is dependent on how much you did that week, how much you exercised, how well you ate, how you look. People-pleasing, serving others, seeking to please others, it's a good thing. But when it becomes an ultimate thing, you can't say no to anyone or any request So you end up filling your schedule until there's no breathing room, which usually leads to damaged relationships with those closest to you because you've neglected them. How about shopping? Uh, Timely one in that one, huh? Shopping. Contrary to what you might think, shopping is not inherently wrong. But when you shop to fill a void, similar to eating or exercising, when you shop to fill a void, When you shop to comfort yourself or to provide you with relief or pleasure, you've turned shopping into an ultimate thing. What happens next? Well, the high quickly fades. You begin to feel bad about your choices. You end up in debt. Or the house so cluttered you can't move through it. Our inordinate desires really do make a mess of our lives. And everybody's got a whole list of them, a laundry list, inordinate desires, good things. You've turned into got to have it things. You know, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien knew this very well. They knew it very well. And they portrayed this in their writings. In in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lewis creates the character Eustace, that lovable, easy to get along with character. He's got this intense desire for, you know, this treasure, right? Longs to have the treasure, longs to have the treasure, just filling his imagination. He spends every free moment thinking about it. He gets to it. He falls asleep on a pile of treasure. And what happens? He wakes up as a dragon. It's turned him into a monster. Good things that become got to have it. Things turn us into dragons. How did Tolkien portray this? with the lovable character, Smeagol. Yes? What did he have to have? Come on, what do you have to have? The ring. He had to have the ring. He had to have the, What happens when he puts on the ring? This Smeagol, which was actually terrifying to see in the movies, turns into Gollum. Gollum. They got it. Lewis, Tolkien, they understood it. Our inordinate desires turn us into dragons and golems. Dragons and golems, and they make a mess of our lives. So, what are your over-desires? <laughs> what are your inordinate cravings? What are the things in life you feel like you have to have in order to be content? You might ask, well, how do I identify those? How do I identify those? Well, one way to do that is to look at, look at your strongest emotions When do you get angry? When do you get very, very anxious? What what is happening when you experience those things? When you lose your temper, when you're paralyzed, crippled by fear. Whatever that is, I'd put money on the fact that it's an overdesire. Something in your life has been taken away or is being threatened. And that something is no longer a good thing. It's a God, I have a thing. So identify the things that become too important to you and confess those to God. Find out what they are. Confess them and simply say, God, I want this too much. I just want this too much. Help me temper my appetite. Reshape it. Identifying over desires and confessing those to God is a critical part of Christian change. And second, you've got to create the conditions for growth. You've got to create the conditions for growth. If love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control are fruit, the plant is a Holy Spirit plant. You got the image? Picture it? If the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those. If that's the fruit, the plant is a Holy Spirit plant. Just like apple trees produce apples, Holy Spirit trees produce love, joy, peace, etc. The virtues are produced in us because it's in the very nature of the Spirit to produce these things. Okay? Now, quick side note again. Look up here. This is why... This is why conversion is the most critical factor to personal and societal change. I have hammered on this before, but I know it leaks. So we've got to remind ourselves of this. Conversion is the most critical component to personal and societal change. No conversion, no Holy Spirit, no Holy Spirit, no love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. My son is a Rubik's cube guy. I don't know how it works. I really don't. Early on, when he had told me he mastered this thing, I said, "Yeah, okay, bring it here. Give me that thing. I'm going to mess this up so bad you'll never be able to get this back together." And so I did. I just worked on it for four, five, six, seven minutes, right, messing it all up. I said, "Good luck with that." Well, he cranked it out, right? Finished. Okay, give me that again. Give me that again. Right? Uh, mess it all up, right? I gave it to him. I said, good luck with that. He put it back together. I said, what is the deal here? He says, he said, Dad, (laughs) you can mess this thing up a thousand different ways. The way you fix it is always the same. I said, son, thank you for that. I needed it. I needed it. But not for what you think. I needed it. There's some people on Sunday who need to hear that. You can mess it up a thousand different ways. There's, only, there's The way you fix it's the same. So it is with conversion. You can have a thousand different ways people are messed up. The way to fix it's still the same. It's conversion. No Holy Spirit. Hmm? No change. But, back on topic, Fruit implies a gardener. Yes? If the spirit is the plant, okay. love, joy, peace are the fruit. Yeah? Who's the gardener in this picture? Who's the gardener in this picture? When my wife and I bought our first home, we put in a raised garden bed for tomatoes, peppers, squash, and cucumbers. I was so naive about what it takes to be a gardener. You green thumbs, man, that, that is talent. That is talent. It was very frustrating. Growing fruit (laughs) is not like manufacturing chairs. See, when you manufacture chairs, the manufacturer almost has complete control over the construction of the product. Here's what happens. If you put this there and that there, you get a chair. A gardener cannot say, if you put this there and that there, you get a pepper. So when I put my tomato plants in the soil, they immediately began to struggle. Leaves were turning a yellowish-brown color. They were droopy. I was a novice at this, but it was clear to me the tomato plants were hurting. My parents came over one day. My dad, who's more experienced at this, took a look at it and said, Hey, when you first planted them, did you put any fertilizer on them? I said, No. Well, you might want to do that. So I did. Three to four days later, tomato plants bounced back. We ended up having a successful harvest. Now, I can't do a thing. I can't do a thing to make my tomato plants produce tomatoes. But there are a number of things I can do to create the conditions needed for them to thrive. A gardener doesn't put together tomatoes like a piece of IKEA furniture. But a gardener can do some things to create the best growing conditions possible. So, who's the gardener? Hmm? You are. You are the gardener of your own soul. You're the gardener of your own soul. What are you doing to create good growing conditions for the fruit of the spirit to thrive in your life? What are you doing? There's lots that goes into this. Let me mention six very quickly. Number one is scripture. Scripture. Listen, your mind is like a vacuum cleaner that's always on. Carry that image with you this week. Your mind is like a vacuum cleaner that is always on. Parents, remember that for your kids. Their minds are like vacuum cleaners that are always on. They're always sucking up stuff. No matter where they go, they're always sucking up stuff. Question, is there time carved out, protected, to allow your mind to suck up scripture? Part of being a good gardener who creates ideal growing conditions for the fruit of the spirit to flourish means a passionate commitment to reading this book. If you're banking on Sunday morning to provide all your biblical nourishment for the week, you are in trouble. Nobody here eats one day a week and fasts the other six. If you don't do that with physical food, why would you think you can do that with spiritual food? As gardener of your own soul, pouring the fertilizer of scripture onto it is an absolute necessity and it can't just be here on Sunday morning. Second, prayer, before your feet hit the floor in the morning. Simple prayer, Lord, help me honor you this day in thought, word, and deed. Conform me to the image of your son. Sit. before your feet hit the floor. When you spend time with another believer, don't waste the opportunity to pray for each other. My, my hope and my prayer for this gathering on Sunday mornings is that as you interact with people, you hear about what's going on in their lives, you take a moment to pray for what you've heard. There's something in what they've shared with you that you can take before the Lord. Third, Christian community. One of the reasons God has put us into Christian communities is to help change us. It's not just to meet emotional needs. One of the reasons God brings us together is to change us. If you're not part of a smaller group of people, don't expect much change to be happening in your life. Get into a men's group, a women's group, a life group, a class, some smaller group of people. Even if it's one-on-one with another believer consistently for the purpose of opening the word of God, praying with each other. Think of it this way. Think of Christian community this way. Wise farmers understand that it's beneficial to grow things together. They know that strategically placing certain plants together yields unexpected rewards. This method is called companion planting. They can be used to protect plants from the sun, guard against animal foraging, encourage productive growth. Some plants enrich the soil while others loosen it and allow for other roots to grow. Some repel harmful insects while others invite helpful ones. Companion planting can also provide stability for climbing plants, like how sunflowers provide trellises for cucumber vines. Think of Christian community as companion planting. Christian community is companion planting. You do serve a complementary role in another person's life. You do have that. And they do with you for mutual benefit. Fourth, flesh-on-flesh worship. Coming out of COVID, I I hammered this because, in in a sense, we have Christians all over the world had lost a picture of this and a vision of this, the importance of a flesh-on-flesh gathering. Uh, There's an often overlooked passage of Scripture in Ephesians 5 that should, for us, reprioritize this gathering. In summary form, we're commanded to continually be filled with the Spirit. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's not optional. However, it's not something we do to or for ourselves. It's passive voice. Be filled with the Spirit. Which means God is using some means to accomplish that. What does the text say? How does, how does that happen? Well, Paul says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks, always submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, God uses the various spiritual activities of the flesh and blood gathering to continually fill his people with the Spirit. There is something incredible and something mysterious and something invisible that happens in this gathering on Sundays. Something incredible, something mysterious, something invisible that happens in this gathering on Sundays. Your soul is too valuable to withhold from it the nutrients that this gathering provides us. So as gardener of your own soul, make it a priority to be here often. Be here often and come ready to engage. Fifth, serving, one, serving others. The reason we take good things and turn them into got to have it things is self-absorption. <laughs> What's wrong with us and the thing that needs to change is our preoccupation with our appetites. Serving God and others helps to redirect us outward, shifting our attention away from ourselves Serving others can help us stop thinking about our wants and instead focus on other people's needs. As a rule of thumb, we have to intentionally move in this direction of decreasing or at least combating or balancing out the consuming by giving. And sixth, suffering. Suffering. Now, I'm not saying, because the scriptures don't, go out there and figure out a way to suffer. I'm not saying that. Suffering will find you. Suffering will find you. God uses suffering to change us. He uses suffering to change us. Romans 5, we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Our tendency today, especially, is to avoid suffering like the plague, But God is saying, you will not become all that I want you to be unless you suffer. You got that? You will not become all I want you to be unless you suffer. Your growth as a Christian will be stunted unless you suffer. You'll be a spiritual midget unless you suffer. So, suffering is an opportunity. Don't run from it, lean into it. Let me put it this way. The story is told of a Christian man who was struggling through a very difficult season in life, dealing with all kinds of adversity and and he got to a point where he was in despair over what God was doing in his life. And he took a walk through uh, his city and he encountered a construction site where a massive cathedral was about to be finished. And there was a stonemason who was working on, uh, carefully, on a decorative piece. And this man walked up to him and asked him what he was doing. And the worker said, I'm shaping this down here so that it will fit up there. The next bout of adversity and suffering and hardship that comes your way, Christian. Remember what the Lord is doing in that. He's shaping you down here so you'll fit up there. The Spirit of God is forming in you fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Change may be slow, it may be seasonal, but it is inevitable. However, this doesn't mean you have no role to play. You're a gardener of your own soul. Responsible to create good growing conditions. Why? Because God saved you to conform you to the image of Jesus who is the image of God. I'll conclude with this quote from John Newton, author of the song Amazing Grace. He once wrote, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the Apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. So, Lord, I pray that you put that vision afresh before us again. That you have saved us through Christ in order to conform us to his image and his likeness. You've you've saved us so that we will showcase what Jesus is like to each other in the world. Let us not forget that. And Lord, I pray for um, our approach to change, that you would first of all shape our expectations for what this is going to be like, that we'd remember how your word portrays this to us. And Lord, I pray that you'd convict us where we are gardeners of our own soul and, and no doubt there are areas of our lives that, where we have neglected these things. We've not been tilling up the soil. We've not been watering the plants. We've got pests all around them. God, I pray that you would empower us now to just take inventory of how we're doing and that you would steal our resolve to put forth the effort in creating ideal growing conditions for your spirit to have his way in our lives. We ask that as that work is done, that you would shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. We pray these things for his glory. Amen.